welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we open your word, as we dig into your word, that your word would um, be alive within us, Lord, that it wouldn't just be one more Sunday looking at one more passage, that you would arrest us, that you would stop us in our tracks, that you would show us something that perhaps we've read hundreds of times and show us that it's something alive and something in some way new, even though it's very old, and that our hearts would be changed that we would leave different people than when we came here. And Lord, we are in so much need. All of us are in different places of need. Some of us come here with pains of all kinds. And some of us come here in a great mood and in a great place. And Lord, we just pray that you would meet us wherever we're at and that we'd lead here with a new joy that even in our struggles, even in our difficulties, we would know so clearly that your son Jesus is better than anything we've lost. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we heard about Paul's imprisonment, and he switches now from talking about his situation to their situation, and he gives them this one overarching instruction, and it's in verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is like a big overarching instruction, right? This covers everything. He says only in the sense that just one more thing, just one thing you need to remember. Or, you know, no matter what happens, do this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And verses 27 through 30 are actually one really long sentence in the Greek. Paul's famous for this. He can write these really long sentences, very non-standard. He'll just go and go and go. This is one long sentence. So everything that's in this chunk is a description of how we can live a life worthy of the gospel. And you might say, worthy of the gospel is kind of a weird way to talk. A a manner of life worthy of the gospel is if our life earns the gospel somehow. Of course, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because the, the gospel is a message of Jesus has earned everything on our behalf to make us right before God. So in what sense could our life be worthy of it? It's not that you know, you owed him all this for all he's done, and now you're going to make it all up to him by your life. It's not that at all. Even in the song when we said that we're, we're debtors, we don't mean that in any sense that we can repay it. We can never repay God. We can't repay him by our works. We can't earn it. We can't repay it. And so what does it mean by worthy? Well, it means by worthy that it's the kind of life that fits the gospel, You know, what kind of life is worthy of the gospel in the sense that it's shaped by the gospel, in the sense that it fits the gospel, in the sense that it's the kind of life you would expect to flow from someone who really believes the gospel. And our whole lives, guys, really should be patterned after the gospel and empowered by the gospel, right? We know 
what to do by looking at what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. And we know how to do it, where to find the power by looking to him for strength. And so what does a life look like that's lived in a manner worthy of the gospel? And there's three things in this text. It's a life that stands firm. It's a life that strives together. And it's a life that's fearless. So we're going to look at that. The life shaped by the gospel stands firm. It's immovable. It's an immovable life. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. So the kind of life that the gospel should produce, somebody that believes the gospel should have, is a life that stands firm. What would the opposite of that be? What's the opposite of standing firm? Wavering? Giving up? Weakness? Yeah. Drifting, right? falling down, you know, being blown over, being knocked off course. In Hebrews, there's this warning in Hebrews 2, 1 that says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, speaking of the gospel, lest we drift away from it. And the term in that verse is a, it's a nautical term of a ship that at night, people go to sleep on the ship, the ship loses its anchor, and the ship drifts. You don't feel a ship drifting. You wake up in the morning and you're like, where are we? You know, you're in some sort of dangerous water. Some of you guys have had that experience spiritually. You woke up one day and you said, how did I get here? You got there from drifting. The first century Philippians here had all kinds of pressures to drift. You know, the currents against them were strong. There was open persecution. We saw that in Acts 16 when Paul first went there. There were a diversity of philosophies and religions, and there was a real temptation to just kind of mix them together to kind of affirm everything everybody believes and take a little collection of it for yourself. You know, the Roman government was really fine with whatever you wanted to worship as long as you'd worship Caesar too, right? It was the patriotic thing to do. There was rampant immorality. I mean, you think now like, oh man, their culture's so immoral. First century Roman culture, way more immoral. You know, there was a real temptation to kind of drift into that. There was the allure of materialism, you know, to get caught up in acquiring wealth and status. In some ways, guys, the 21st century that we live in is kind of a techno version of the first century. There's a lot of similarities. It's become increasingly hard for us to kind of say that someone else's religion or philosophy is wrong. We need to be nice and affirm everybody and say, you know, it's all kind of good. Do what's right for you. You know, make it a buffet. Take what you like from the buffet right? It's increasingly tough to talk clearly about sexual matters and what the Bible says about it without being seen as unloving or judgmental. It's increasingly hard for us to keep our eyes on Christ because we are so safe and we are so rich and we are so distracted by constant entertainment. I mean, you guys think, well, I'm not rich. You are. (laughs) We are so safe. You just think about how safety makes you not need to trust the Lord, you think. Or you think about riches. How much did Jesus warn us about riches? You know? If we took seriously Jesus' warning about riches, we would treat that raise or that additional money as a, as a grenade with the pin pulled out. And how much are we distracted by constant entertainment? When's the last time you were bored? You're like, right now. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> but in general, <laughs> never, Right? constantly distracted by entertainment. So in some ways, we're back in the first century. We're hearing some of the same voices. We hear the voices they heard, voices like, why are you Christians so stubborn? Why can't you just go along with us? It's fine if you want to worship this Jesus, but 
Don't be so exclusive. Affirm everybody. Go along with things. You guys are so serious. You need to just enjoy life, right? A lot of professing Christians, many that you know, have drifted in the past few years. And how many of you guys know people that you were like, that person, that family, that church seemed so solid. They seemed like they were so standing firm, and now they've drifted. They drifted theologically. I mean, we have at least one major church in our valley that is completely affirming. There's multiple others that are going that direction. I mean, you think about so many people you know personally that have drifted theologically, they've drifted morally, or they've just gotten cold. You know, people that you were like, oh, that person was so on fire. And it's like there's nothing there now. There's not even a flicker of life. Um, it's actually quite amazing sometimes, guys, to see believers in churches who have remained faithful and active decade after decade. So how do we stand firm? How do we swim against these strong currents? Actually, you know what we do? We do it together. Look at verse 27. Stand firm in one spirit. It turns out there's no such thing as living a life worthy of the gospel alone. You actually can't do it without the church. There's no individualistic version of living a life worthy of the gospel. And a lot of us think there is because we've been infected by culture, but there's no way. It's a community life. We stand firm together. Take a look at verse 27. We stand firm in one spirit. That word spirit there is a Greek word pneuma. It can mean spirit of a person or it can mean the Holy Spirit. And there's no way to tell except for context. But I really do think it should be capitalized here that this is the Holy Spirit. Because Paul doesn't usually use the word spirit as like the spirit of a group. Okay? And if you look at Philippians 2.1, it talks about a participation in the spirit. That our participation is in the person of the Holy Spirit. If you look at Philippians 4.1, it says stand firm in the Lord, which is very similar to the wording of this. So he probably means that we all stand firm together in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power for us to stand together. And this community element, guys, is so important. And I know I hammer this all the time, and it's because our culture is telling you otherwise. Our culture is telling you, you got Jesus, just you and Jesus. You guys are good. Don't worry about it, right? But the image Paul uses here is of us standing together, an image from his day would be how the Roman soldiers, they would line up and they would interlock their shields to make one like seamless wall. And then they would interlock their shields up so they have like a little bit of a roof over them, right? And that's the picture here is that the enemy is not able to attack us because we stand together. Guys, I'll just guarantee you this, you will not make it alone. You won't make it alone. Some of you guys already ran that experiment for a while during COVID, right? You said, let's see if we can do this alone. And you got the results, and they were abysmal. No need to repeat that experiment again, right? We need each other. If you're going to stand firm, you need to interlock your lives with other people. These people in this place, stand firm in one spirit. Why is standing firm a way that to, in the manner of the gospel? Because remember, this whole thing is a life worthy of the manner of the gospel, and then standing firm is one way we do that. Why would standing firm be so fitting to what we've heard in the gospel? And the answer is, is that when you found Jesus, you found someone so amazing, why would you want to go anywhere else? Why wouldn't you want to stand firm right next to Jesus? There was a situation where Jesus did some very unpopular teaching. I know, it's shocking. And he upset people. He even upset people that were following him. And it says in John 6, after this, many of the disciples turned away and no longer walked with him. And Jesus turned to the 12 and he says, do you guys want to go away too? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. 
That's a good reason to stand firm. You found Jesus. Where else do you want to go? What else is better? Stand firm. So a life shaped by the gospel looks like standing firm. It also looks like striving together. Look at 27 again. It says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What's really neat here is that if standing firm is like defense, we're going to stand and we're not going to move and we're not going to like give up on the gospel and we're not going to give up on what we've been told, the way we need to live. And, you know, we're going to follow Jesus. We're going to like plan ourselves, right? It's like defense, right? We've got our shields up. We're together. We're, we're holding ourselves in one place. If stand firm is the defense side, this striving together is the offense. Because we're not called to just steward and preserve the gospel. We're called to advance the gospel, to spread the gospel. And that's what this part's about, this striving together. And it's something we do together. You know, Paul says here, with one mind striving side by side. That, that word mind is really cool. So that word mind is the word psyche. It means, obviously, mind. That's why it's translated that way. Soul, right? Spirit, as one person, as one life. Isn't that great? As one psyche. And that doesn't mean, guys, and I think maybe you guys have felt this way before, to be of one mind as a church does not mean that we all believe the same things, okay? It's not like we're all clones, you know? It's like, wait, what's your eschatology? Hmm, we need to fix that. Oh, wait, what's your view on gifts? Ooh, you know? It doesn't mean we have to believe all the same things on every point of doctrine. What it does mean to be of one mind is that we are a body that's coordinated. We're one body coordinated together. You know, we're, we're Christ's body on earth, and the Spirit makes that happen. The Spirit is the one that makes us all be able to live as, I know it doesn't look super coordinated all the time, but we do live as one coordinated body. You know, a little jerky sometimes, you know, falling over occasionally, but the way this works is the Holy Spirit in you, and in you, and in you, and in you, and in you, Holy Spirit, each one of you joins us all together as one. It's the Holy Spirit that, that innervates us. The person and the Spirit innervates us to make us one body so that we're connected. So he gives us the gifts so that we can minister to each other so the body takes care of itself, right? He gives us gifts so that as we combine our gifts together, we actually portray a picture of Christ to the world. And the Spirit gives us love for one another so that when one body part suffers, we all suffer. And so we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And as we do that, the church grows. And that's what's been happening for the last 2,000 years, is that the Holy Spirit has been indwelling his people, uniting them together to strive side by side with each other to build his church over millennia. And, uh, and sometimes we fall off from striving, don't we? And one of the reasons we fall off from striving is we hurt each other, right? So we're going to do that, by the way. Just so you know, we're going to hurt you. Not intentionally. There was this church sign. I love church signs. It just came to mind. There was this church sign on this church, and they, I knew their heart. It was good. The church sign says, we love hurting people. And you're like, I bet you do. You know? We don't love hurting people. We love hurting people, but we don't love hurting them. But we don't want to hurt you, but it happens, right? We're together. We have sin. We're dealing with it. This happened actually in Philippi. If you look at chapter 4, verse 2, it happened between two ladies in the Philippian church, Eudia and Syntyche. If you look at Philippians 4, 2, it says, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I love this because, you know, they read the letter from Paul and he calls them out by name. I think we're going to start doing that. You know, like, so he calls them out by name. He says, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche, agree in the Lord. Yes, also, True companion, help these women 
who have been, listen to this, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see the correlation here? They were working side by side. They were ministering. They were, the church was growing. They were striving together, and then something happened. You know, one of them offended the other one, or something happened, and they stopped doing it. And so here's another place, guys, where the gospel reshapes us. You know, if this is a life worthy of the gospel, the gospel actually allows us to return to a place where we can walk in a manner worthy of it. The gospel gives us the power to forgive each other, right? To reconcile with each other, and then to move on in the work. And I love what he says here. He tells them, agree in the Lord. The Lord always in the New Testament refers to Jesus. Agree in Jesus, right? Let Jesus be your reconciliation. So we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, and as we do, we're building something great. And I know it looks very humble, but we're building something great. And Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. He says this, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and in whom the whole structure being joined together is growing into a holy temple. So what are we building as we strive side by side with each other? We're building a holy temple. Growing up into a holy temple, in him you are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so all these little acts of striving side by side for the gospel are building gradually this spiritual temple. And by the way, this spiritual temple is not like, it's not our individual church only. A lot of people are like, we're going to build something, you know. What are we building? We're building the spiritual temple, the universal church of God, (laughs) The church has been built for thousands of years. All we're doing is adding our little piece to that, okay? There's no grandiose vision that we're going to, like, take over and we're going to have thousands of people and we're going to have this amazing huge building. It's none of that. We're just doing our part in a generation in building this temple for Christ, right? Some of you guys are probably aware of the Cologne Cathedral. Anyone ever been there, Cologne Cathedral? You have? What in the world? It's in Germany, right? I don't want to get this wrong. Okay. So the building of the Cologne Cathedral in Germany, it started in 1248, okay? It started in 1248. It was finished in 1880, okay? So for those of you not great at math, that's 632 years they built this thing, okay? And there were some wars and reasons why that happened, but the the bottom line is, is that the original architect and the masons who put those first stones for Cologne Cathedral, they knew they were never going to see it built. They knew that. They knew they were never see built. They knew they would never see its its 516 foot towers. It's got two of them. It's got two of them that are actually only 2.4 inches different in height. They're Germans. This is like precision, right? They're like, well, that was because the Earth sank a little bit. That wasn't us. It was perfect, you know. But these people that laid the first stones, they they knew they would never see these towers. They knew they would never enter its doors. They knew they would never worship around its stained glass and its arches. But it was worth it to them. Do you know why? Because they were building something to honor Christ. So it was like, hey, we're going to put our rock down. We're going to put our stone down. We're going to put our bricks down. We're going to do our part. It's just our part in a generation. Guys, like them, as you're striving side by side, you're building a temple for Christ. You're building the church, not of bricks, but of people, right? And like them, you will not live to see its completion in your lifetime. But we will see it. We'll see it in the world to come. 
Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heavens and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the vision of the church coming down out of heaven into the new earth. This is the church. This is the temple of God completed. Isn't that amazing? You're going to get to see it. You're going to see it. And, and that's what you're building every time you engage in ministry with the people in this room. And it's just our part in this generation. I think one of the reasons churches go off the rails is they think they're going to build some sort of amazing, you know, legacy and they're going to be the greatest and stuff. We really need to think more like those Masons. We do our part in the generation, right, to advance the gospel, building something that's going to honor Christ forever. And this is what living in a, a manner worthy of the gospel is, right? It's what it is. It's, it's building a people that will enjoy Christ's work and glorify him forever. And I just asked you this morning, did you have something better to do with your life? Maybe you did. You probably don't now, <laughs> which is great. Do you have something better to build? Guys, our personal kingdoms are like sandcastles in comparison. Like, not only will we not live to see them built all the way, we will live to see them be washed away, okay? Like, have you really joined yourself to the body of believers to do this great work? Are you functioning as one psyche, as one mind, you know, using your gifts to build up others and draw others into the community? It's a beautiful thing, guys, because every time you share the gospel or you help with setup or you work on tech team or sound or you lead worship or you host a community group or you serve in children's or, you know, greet new people, get to know them. Anytime you uh, practice hospitality, anytime you invite a friend into this community, which takes a lot of trust, I know, and people are like, hey, I invited somebody, so don't do anything crazy, you know. <laughs> every time you invite somebody into this community, every time you pray for the sick, Every time you meet their financial needs, every time you share the scripture with them or deliver a meal, every time you do that, guys, you're striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. And they look like little acts. They don't look like much. They're like that mason putting that brick down. You know, they don't look like very much, but this is the way the church has grown over 2,000 years, brick by brick, slowly but surely. So living a life worthy of the gospel looks like standing firm, striving together. And then lastly, and this is the part that I think will arrest your attention a little bit as well, is living fearlessly. Look at verse 28. This is the other thing he wants to see in him or hear about him. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And we were talking on Tuesday. Um, we did a group on that Strange New World book, we did like a part two, which we'll do again if you guys want to do it. Just email me. Hey, I want one of these. I do birthday parties. I do special events. We could bring the book. We could talk about those things. It'd be real fun. But we were just talking about the culture change, massive culture change, right? Do you guys realize in 2008, Californians voted for marriage to be defined between a man and a woman? Californians did that. In a way, things have changed, okay? <laughs> things have changed. Lots of things have changed. I want to ask you guys this. Just think about your situation in, in culture as you think about our world. And do you, do you worry about the changes you see in our culture? Do you worry about how these changes are going to make it harder and harder for you to be a Christian? Do you worry about that? You know what Paul says? 
don't do that. He says, don't worry about that. Take a look at it. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Guys, there seems to be a whole Christian industry focused on disobeying this command. There seems to be a whole industry that not only stokes, but feeds financially off Christians' fears of persecution. Okay? And I'm not like, put your head in the sand, I'm not saying any of that. But I am saying that if whatever we're taking in makes us more frightened by our opponents, guys, fear sells. It sells. Paul gives two reasons here why we should be absolutely fearless of persecution. And I know this is the part that's so countercultural, it's crazy. Like, I went over this a few times, and I was like, oh, that's good. And then later I was like, wait, is that right? You know? And then I looked again, I'm like, yeah, that's right. This is so countercultural. Our fearlessness about persecution is a sign to the world. This is crazy. Look at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So what this passage is saying is when persecution comes and we're not afraid, it's a sign to the world of their destruction. So your fearlessness about persecution is an omen to the lost about the coming judgment. Isn't that interesting? It's a sign to them of their destruction. Your fearlessness is unsettling to the world. But your anxiety delights them. You guys realize that? The more that we're seen is afraid and withdrawn and getting really freaked out, guys, your anxiety delights them. I mean, yeah, I can just imagine them. They're like, look at how panicky those Christians are about, you know, losing their rights and their hardship and, you know, Christians so persecuted, right, in America. They could easily think, there must be nothing to this. <laughs> Super easy to rattle them, right? Guys, Christians suffering persecution with joy was God's church growth plan from the beginning. And I know you're not going to have, like, pastor conferences about it, you know? You're not going to be like, let's get everybody together. This is how you really grow a church, you know? Let's get persecuted, you know? <laughs> this would not... Everybody came home with, you know, books about it and stuff like that. No. Listen to this. The African church father, Tertullian, this is 197 AD. This is what he said it to his persecutors as he wrote to them. He said, the more we are mowed down by you, the more we grow in number. The blood of Christians is the seed. <laughs> wow, okay. Sounds biblical, actually. Guys, we've had several hundred years of growing by other means, but the original plan was persecution. And if the Lord sees fit to switch us back to that church growth model of persecution, we know that works great too, doesn't it? It actually works really well. And those Christians tend to be real fit too. So I know this is challenging to you, but it's, it's very biblical. Our fearlessness about persecution is a sign to the world when we're unafraid of persecution. Secondly, persecution... Paul goes so far as to say that persecution is a gift from God. Okay, this is where it really gets crazy. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That word granted to you in Greek, it's, it's graciously given to you. Like this is the gift God's giving you, right? He says, there are two gifts actually mentioned in this passage. The first one is your saving faith. So take a look at that. Your saving faith is a gift from God. You can see that in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for 
the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. So what does this teach us? This teaches us our saving faith, our original faith to believe on Christ, our faith that we have right now is a gift from God. That the one reason why you trust in Christ and other people do not is not because you're smarter or you're better or you're just naturally more religious. The reason why you trust in Christ and somebody else doesn't is because God has graciously granted to you to believe. That's what it says here in 29. Faith itself is a gift from God. And so is any persecution you endure for Christ. Also a gift. Take a look at 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And what you're thinking, you're probably thinking like, I don't know which of those gifts is more controversial. You kind of bothered me with the whole predestinarian sounding thing that you were just doing. But now you're bothering me that, you know, persecution is also a gift. I'm not sure which to go after first, right? I would just say learn to love both because they're true. This way of seeing persecution, guys, as a gift from God, it isn't just here. This is actually the normal Christian life. Our lives, not the normal Christian life. This, the normal Christian. And I'm not saying you got to go out and create it, okay? Because Peter covers that. He's like, don't suffer as like a jerk or an idiot or annoying, okay? Like, he doesn't say that exactly. I'll read it in a little bit. But, <laughs> but this whole thing about persecution being some sort of gift from God is all throughout Scripture. Matthew 5.10 Jesus says this, blessed are those who are persecuted, blessed, lucky, lucky you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or Peter, this is the passage I just butchered, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. It's talking about persecution. Don't be surprised. We're always surprised. It's like, how dare they? Do they know who I am? You know, like, it's like surprise, right? What? He says, don't do that. Don't be surprised. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as far as you share in the sufferings of Christ that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you, this is the part I butchered, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in his name. I just ask you guys, do you hear anyone today talking about persecution as a gift from God? I think it's a missing voice. And these are not all the passages. You know that. You read the Gospels, you, you could get dozens of these. They're everywhere. And Paul would like you to go from fearing persecution to looking forward to it. Okay, and I know that's a big move. This morning we'll do this part. We'll go from fearing persecution, maybe, to not fearing it. And then later, as you read the scriptures and stuff, as we grow, we could go to looking forward to it. I don't know. Can you make the whole loop? Yeah, you could. The Spirit could do that this morning. You'd be looking forward to it. He would want us to have the, the point of view of like persecution comes and we go, oh, okay, good. Here's our chance. We're on. Here we go. Jesus said that in Luke 21. He, he talks about all this awful persecution and then you know what he says? This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Isn't that wild? This will be your chance. <laughs> like, this will be your turn. Guys, when you encounter real persecution, we're to receive it as a gift from God and we're to make the most of it. So, Remember, this whole passage is about living worthy of the gospel. 
the gospel actually helps us to be fearless of persecution as well. Because the gospel is the good news that our greatest fear is gone. Isn't it? The gospel is the good news that our greatest fear is gone. Every human being should mostly fear God. Above all else, they should fear God. It should be the wrath of God against their sin should be their greatest fear. And it's a wrath against our sin that would, that would go on forever. I mean, Jesus spoke of it as a flame that can never be quenched. The wrath of God for our sin is a flame that can never be quenched. But the gospel tells us that Jesus, the perfect son, was able to extinguish that flame. And he extinguished the flame of God's wrath. He extinguished it in his body. Isn't that amazing? He's like, I, I can extinguish that. I'll do it with my body. On the cross, Jesus Christ was willing to endure the eternal flame of God's wrath for your sin and extinguish it in his own body. He let the flame of God's judgment do its burning work on both his body and his soul until the full penalty for your sin was fully absorbed. And it killed him. And yet three days later, he rose again from the dead victorious and he shares that victorious life with you. The gospel takes away our greatest fear. Right? The gospel is the good news that we are saved from God, from God's wrath, by God in Christ, for God, to enjoy him forever. We're saved from God, by God, for God. Which gives us a gospel motive to endure persecution. Look at 29 again. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What's beautiful in that verse is that persecution is suffering for Christ. You know, the one who suffered our full penalty for sin, that we would suffer for him. And I know that we know how to suffer for people we love. Like, you would be totally willing to suffer for the friends you love. You'd totally be willing to suffer for a spouse if you have one. You'd be willing to suffer for your kids. If you love Christ, you're willing to suffer for him too, right? If it's for him, then we'll do it, right? It's a gift because it's a suffering for the sake of Christ. Guys, it's an honor to be identified with him, isn't it? If your life so showed Christ that somebody wanted to persecute you for it, it's an honor. You know, the apostles who were beaten in Acts 5, they left the presence of the council rejoicing, this is after them beating up, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. That your persecution would, would glorify Jesus in such a way to show the world that Jesus is better than anything. Like the people in Hebrews that they talk about that they joyfully accepted the plunder of their property since they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. Isn't that amazing? That your suffering would act as a warning to the world, an omen to the lost of the coming judgment. And remember, guys, it's not me telling you this. It's Paul telling you this. And Paul is writing this to them, to you, while he's chained to imperial guards, while he's awaiting a trial before crazy Nero, to see if he'll live or die. You can see that in verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. They saw that when he came to visit them the first time. Seen that conflict? Yes. And now you still see I still have. Guys, this is what our people do. This is what our people have always done. This is what it looks like to be shaped by the gospel. You stand firm, strive together, and we're fearless. Let's pray. Help us, Father, to do that. Lord, so much of this is challenging to us, Lord. You know that. And we just pray, Lord, that you would, through the gospel, 
through your spirit, that you would help us to live in this way. Father, cause the gospel to so rock our hearts, to so alter its internal landscape that we would live in a whole new way, that we would stand fast, that we would strive together, and that we'd be fearless. And we ask that you would strengthen our brothers and sisters who are taking the real heat of things like this right now in places like China and Sri Lanka and in places like North Korea and Afghanistan, but all around the world in places where your people are fully engaged in living this, we pray, Lord, for your grace upon them. And we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in their offering of love. And we pray, Lord, for those who are their persecutors, that they would take that sign of their judgment seriously, repent and believe. Lord, we pray that you would continue to cause the church to grow in all the most difficult soils by the seeds of your people willing to give up anything to speak of you. Lord, give us some of their courage. By the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you give us some of their courage? Lord, we know their courage comes from the Holy Spirit. And we just pray, Lord, give us that same courage, we pray. Give us that same strength. Give us that same joy. Give us that same vision of reality of what really matters, of the beautiful thing you're building through the ministry we do together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.